Hello and welcome to Hugh's Joy of Food, a bite-sized podcast celebrating all that's amazing about everything edible, from the simplest snack to the fanciest feast. I'm Hugh Smithson-Wright, and this week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I'm reviewing local favourite Lusitania in London's Little Portugal, helping a listener to plan the menu for her first post-lockdown dinner party in Ask Hugel, and eschewing chocolate in favour of the joy of actual eggs in Treat of the Week. Each week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I review a restaurant in some way, whether it's one I've actually been to recently or a home delivery, be that a ready-to-eat takeaway or a make-at-home meal kit. First, a disclaimer. My job as a restaurant PR and consultant means that I'm paid to promote the interests of the handful of restaurants I represent. If I feature a client on this podcast, I'll make that clear, like I do on my social media channels. And in all cases, I'll make it clear if all or any part of a meal I review was complimentary. You can rest assured that everywhere I review, I recommend. This show is about the joy of food. So if you're looking for vicious eviscerations, this probably isn't the podcast for you. With that out of the way, it's time for this week's review. The lovely enclave of South London I'm lucky enough to call home is known, both informally and, if you look on maps, as Little Portugal. Since the 1960s, this village in South Lambeth, straddling Vauxhall and Stockwell, has been home to one of the largest Portuguese and Brazilian populations in the country. Along and between the main thoroughfares of South Lambeth and Wandsworth Roads, almost every business is Portuguese-owned. So much so, in fact, that when my parents-in-law visited me and my husband in our current home for the first time and took themselves out one morning to what my mother-in-law described as the Little Portuguese Café, we pointed out that that could actually be anywhere within a mile radius. Even when my father-in-law clarified that it was between the hardware shop and the bookies, that only narrowed it down to three. As well as those myriad cafes, there are bakeries, delicatessens, fishmongers, social clubs and bars – Walk through the area on a busy, mild evening, and you could easily imagine yourself to be in Lisbon rather than Lambeth. And it's this sense of escapism that leads me to the subject of this week's review, the lovely restaurant Lusitania, named not after the ill-fated ocean liner, but the historic name for the region known today as Portugal. Even before the pandemic struck and foreign travel became such a distant prospect that it's almost like we imagined it ever having been possible – I said that to set foot in Lusitania felt like being on holiday. Anyone who's been not just to Portugal, but to any sun-soaked Mediterranean resort will recognise the decor. Light and bright, a little blingy, with tables suited to the kind of large sociable family groups of all nationalities which flock to this kind of restaurant. Large flat-screen TVs showing sports, soaps and quiz shows might not be something we're used to in London, but a dirigeur on the continent And who wouldn't want to watch a bit of Portuguese who wants to be a millionaire over their partner's shoulder between courses? The menu is written in both Portuguese and English, which is handy as I don't speak Portuguese, and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the Portuguese names of dishes here. Suffice it to say, the menu is divided into three main sections, starters and tapas, a selection of traditional mains headed charmingly bringing back memories, and from the grill. There's also a kids' menu and some Sunday specials. You can make up a perfectly decent meal from the starters and tapas alone. Over several visits, I've tried most of them, and the ones I'd say you shouldn't miss are potato and cured ham croquettes served with a fierce aioli, grilled chorizo which yields to the teeth with a satisfying snap, flambéed and fiery aguardiente, 
plump garlic shrimp, which comes swimming in a delicious butter you'll want some of the excellent Madeiran bread to soak up, and ferociously Moorish tempura green beans, which come with a roasted pepper mayonnaise. I would highly recommend that you have these as starters, though, rather than as the main event, because there are some truly great dishes elsewhere on the menu that I really wouldn't want you to miss out on. Whenever I visit, I try to psych myself up to order something that isn't the Lusitania steak served with dried ham, a fried egg and special sauce, but I usually fail because I love this dish so much. I've tried to flirt, cajole, charm and even bribe the staff into disclosing what's in that special sauce, but I've more chance of persuading the colonel to reveal the secret of his 11 herbs and spices and he's dead. My guess is some combination of cognac, cream, I think white pepper and quite possibly a good knob of butter. Any attempt at carb dodging is futile here, because you'll want to dredge every one of the plentiful chips the steak comes with through that sauce. The pork neck with clams is a delight too, the sweetness of clams making for a delicious contrast to the salty smokiness of chunked pork neck and the sour crunch of pickles. And my mother-in-law loves the cataplana, a saffron-rich monkfish stew served in a copper pan. From the grill, you might want to try the classic frango chicken, seasoned with piri-piri spices and grilled, sea bream with salad, or if you've the appetite, maybe a mixed grill of sirloin steak, pork belly, lamb chops and chicken. Portions are almost on the over-generous side, especially as all dishes from the grill come with a side dish of your choice included in the price. And on that subject, pricing is incredibly good value here. Those starters and tapas are all around the seven quid mark, and almost all mains are under £20, even the more luxurious dishes from the grill. If you've room, and it's entirely possible that you won't for dessert, there's a really nice selection of familiar, mostly dairy-based classics, including an outstanding creme brulee and profiteroles. But you really can't come to a Portuguese restaurant, especially one in Little Portugal, and not finish with pastéis de nata, those sweet, sticky, crumbly custard tarts on crisp pastry that are practically Portugal's national dish. Be warned, they come served hotter than the sun over the Algarve, so curb your enthusiasm and let them cool just a little before tucking in. There are some real gems on the all-Portuguese and Brazilian wine list, which the staff, who are lovely, are only too happy to recommend. The Valle de Raposa Red from Douro is one of the more expensive reds that are still very reasonable £28 and is terrific especially with meats. With fish or chicken, the white from the same vineyard is great value at 19.50. Another excellent, interesting white is the TiagoCabaco.com Premium from Alentejo, also £28. There's a good selection by the glass too. As if all this wasn't enough to persuade you to visit Lusitania, at the back of the restaurant there's a large outdoor area called the Olive Tree Garden, but really just a walled courtyard, where from April, when alfresco dining resumes, you'll be able to enjoy the whole menu, or just drinks, in the open air. Lusitania isn't what I'd call fine dining, but it's fun, affordable, friendly, and a very welcome escape from what I've come to think of this past year as all this. So while it might be many more months before any of us is able to holiday abroad again, in the meantime, a mini-break in Little Portugal remains very much a possibility. For all information, visit Restaurante, that's restaurant with an E, Lusitania, that's L-U-S-I-T-A-N-I-A, dot co, dot UK. Each week... I answer a listener's burning culinary question in Ask Hugel. This week's question comes from Stephanie in Cumbria, who says, Hey Hugel, 
With it looking likely that we'll be allowed to have visitors in our homes again from next month, I'm getting excited about the prospect of having friends we've not seen in ages round for dinner. But my excitement is tempered with anxiety at what to serve. I've always been under the impression that the food served at a dinner party needs to be impressive and made from scratch. And while I'm a more than competent cook, sometimes I'd just like to serve what I'd call home cooking rather than something restaurant-worthy. Can you help me with some ideas that don't need a cordon bleu qualification, but won't leave my guests feeling shortchanged? Stephanie, hello, and thank you for your lovely question, which has also filled me with excitement and optimism just thinking about how wonderful it will be to be allowed to have friends round for dinner again. The fact that you're asking what you can serve that will make your guests happy shows that you absolutely understand the essence of hospitality, whether in the home or in a restaurant, to feed people well and have them leave satisfied. The concept of the dinner party is a hangover from the 1980s, and I think we could all do to leave it behind. There is, you're right, a perception, at least among those of us of a certain age, that the food served at a dinner party has to be more special than the food we usually eat at home ourselves. And I don't think that wanting to go to at least some visible trouble is in itself a bad thing. But come dine with me, while occasionally making for entertaining telly, has a lot to answer for. The competitiveness of it all, right down to the often bitchy judging from the safe distance of the back of a taxi, has instilled in many of us the fear that cooking for others at home is a competition. That way madness lies. Funnily enough, even before your question came in, I was reminiscing recently with a friend about the time a few years ago when he and his husband decided to replicate Come Dine With Me with three other couples, each taking a turn to host over four weeks. So intense and vicious did the competition get, I believe dry ice was involved at one point, that they actually had to abandon it before the fourth couple's turn came, lest it come to blows. Ten years later, my friend tells me, two of the couples still don't speak. For my money, the perfect dinner party, in fact, let's just call it a dinner and do away with the stressful connotations calling it a dinner party of oaks, isn't about showing off your culinary skills. It's about serving food that's a little bit special, but pleases everyone, and doesn't require so much of the host's time that they spend more of it confined to the kitchen than they do with their guests. I see absolutely nothing wrong whatsoever with bought starters, either from your local delicatessen if you have one, or from the deli counter or cabinets at the supermarket if you don't. I think there's nothing lovelier than a table filled with what I like to call picky bits. Cured meats, olives, sun-dried tomatoes, quails, eggs, not as expensive as you might think, maybe some cheese, some lovely bread and things on sticks. And I don't think I could be friends with anyone who didn't love a cheese and pineapple hedgehog. Smoked salmon is always a super starter. Buy as much as you need to put together a large plate of salmon with some capers, lemon, horseradish and some dark rye bread or soda bread and let guests help themselves. If you do want to make something, I think soup's superb. A simple soup like roasted tomato with fresh basil, or a more complicated but still quite straightforward seafood bisque, speaks of effort and care without taking up too much of your time, and it can be made in advance and simply reheated just before serving. 
For main courses, I think something you can serve family style for guests to help themselves to as much or as little of as they want is the best route. A gorgeous fish pie made luxurious with some scallops or really huge prawns, say. Or coquevin, which you can have simmering away when your guests arrive, filling their house with heavenly cooking aromas, is perfect. I don't think you can ever top a really beautiful roast chicken, the best you can afford, with crispy skin and either a peppery salad if you want something light or all the traditional trimmings for something more substantial. My friend Elaine, a wonderful and generous hostess, often serves a rich vegetarian stew with cheese scones as a meat-free main course. And I often dream of my sister's chili con carne banquets, served with a variety of accompaniments such as rice, pita breads and potato skins, with cheese and sour cream for toppings, again all placed in the middle of the table for everyone to help themselves to. Puddings-wise, again, I think something that can be shared is far preferable to, not to mention much less of a faff than, individual desserts that need plating up one by one. Invest, if you don't have one already, in a trifle dish. I bought one online recently for £20. And make a beautiful layered trifle, boozy or not, depending on your and your guest's tastes, or a tiramisu or chocolate mousse. In colder weather, as a guest, I'd love to be served something like a bread and butter or sticky toffee pudding. If you're a baker, why not bake a really lovely cake that everyone can pretend to only want a sliver of, but end up eating a wedge of? After, instead of, or if you're French before dessert, it's lovely to have some cheese. While I'm a fan of a mixed cheese board with all the accoutrements, I think it's equally lovely to just serve one big piece of one really good cheese, something like the truffle Baron Bigod I mentioned in my review of Derby's a couple of episodes ago, a wheel of brie or a chunk of Comte, say, with some grapes and biscuits. Lastly, I always like to end a dinner with one more wafer-thin mint or some other deliberately lowbrow chocolate. Gavin Rankin, the proprietor of my client Bellamy's, a rather grand Franco-Belgian brasserie in Mayfair, says never underestimate the charm of cheap chocolate, and that's why Bellamy's serves a glass of minstrels by way of Petit Four. The chef and restaurateur James Ramsden used to end every meal at his supper club by giving each table a giant bar of Cadbury's dairy milk to share – and my husband likes to bring out the Bendix. The thing I always stress about a dinner, or dinner party if you must, is this. Ultimately, your guests have come to see you, not to judge your cooking. And it's far better to serve something simple that you're confident making, and that ideally can be prepared in advance, than making a rod for your own back by attempting something new and ambitious which will take you away from your guests and leave you too anxious to enjoy yourself. After a year of barely being able to see our families, never mind our friends, every moment we spend together as lockdown eases is going to be precious. Don't waste time stressing over cooking to impress. It's seeing each other that matters. And if we get fed well in the process, well, frankly, that's just a bonus. If you'd like me to have a go at answering your food-related question, you can tweet me at hrwright or send me an email to hrw at hughrichardwright.com. For my final segment, Treat of the Week, each week I share something food or drink related that's been putting a smile on my face. This week, those of us who celebrate Easter will no doubt be tucking into delicious chocolate Easter eggs 
Christmas aside, it's the one time of the year when no excuses need to be made for eating chocolate for breakfast, lunch and tea. But it's not Easter eggs that are this week's treat of the week, but actual eggs in all their wonderful varieties and sizes. Of course, if like my cherished eldest nephew you're allergic to eggs, they'll be your idea of hell, in which case please feel free to skip this segment and tuck into your chocolate eggs instead. But I love eggs, something I've described previously as the ultimate convenience food, individually packaged and portioned by Mother Nature herself, and if you put a gun to my head, which I hope you won't, eggs would be the one food item I'd take with me to a hypothetical desert island. From the tiny delicious eggs of the tiny delicious quail, to the giant thick-shelled sadly not golden eggs of the goose, the not-so-humble egg is probably the most versatile foodstuff nature provides. Think about it. How many other foods need absolutely nothing more doing to them than boiling in water for a few minutes to transform them into a delicious breakfast? What else, cracked into boiling water and poached for mere minutes, could make a finer topping for toast? Beaten together with salt and pepper and milk or cream, some Philistines advise against this, but they're wrong, then warmed patiently in butter over the very lowest heat until scrambled. Eggs are the perfect partner for smoked salmon or very crispy bacon. A fluffy omelette, something I've only mastered in my 40s, either au naturel or filled with cheese, ham, mushroom, spinach, herbs, or actually anything you fancy, makes a very fine breakfast or light lunch. And omelette's heavier continental cousins, tortilla and frittata, are meals in themselves, and a boon to any picnic. I've seen restaurant critics, both professional and wannabe, disdainfully dismiss menus which specify hen's or chicken's egg in a dish's description, But why would you not be specific when there are so many more eggs to choose from than just chickens? Just off the top of my head, I can think of having eaten quail, duck, turkey, plover, gull, pheasant and goose eggs. So actually, I think it's absolutely relevant to say when I'm being served a hen's egg. Goose eggs, if you can ever lay your hands on them, are all the pleasure of a hen's egg multiplied. Laid only in a few months of spring, they're a seasonal indulgence I love to partake of when I can. About three or even four times the size of a hen's egg, goose eggs have huge rich yolks and very thick whites, which I think best suit frying, but you can cook them as you would any egg. It can't be a coincidence that the goose egg season coincides with asparagus season. A fried goose egg served alongside griddled English asparagus with butter and lots of black pepper makes for a very fine meal indeed. I had a very minor, amicable, egg-based disagreement with a chef on Twitter recently about the merits, or lack thereof as he sees it, of the crispy fried egg. While I must admit that for general purposes, such as in a full English, I do like my white to be soft, the crispy fried egg is a staple of some East and Southeast Asian cuisines, and I'm an ardent fan. In her brilliant book, Barn, Recipes and Stories from My Thai Home, Thai-born food writer Kay Plunkett Hogg shares her technique for achieving the perfect crispy egg, frilly and friable round the edges but retaining a soft yolk, to then serve on top of pad krapal mu, fragrant fried minced pork, or on rice. I remember fondly too the crispy egg at now-closed Billy Kwong in Sydney, where Chef Kylie Kwong would fry eggs in fiercely bubbling oil in a wok to achieve an all-over crispness and puffed-up white, which would then be drizzled with chilli oil and sprinkled with spring onions. And of course, no tribute to eggs would be complete without honourable mention of the scotch egg, that one-hand-only substantial meal we all briefly thought we'd be eating in order to be allowed in the pub late last year. So varied are the ways in which a boiled egg can be encased in pork or something else and breadcrumbed that Young's pubs have for several years now hosted a nationwide scotch egg challenge in which chefs compete to see whose egg will be voted the best in Britain. 
I've been honoured to be asked to judge the competition on a couple of occasions. I say honoured, but after you've tasted 20 or so scotch eggs of varying degrees of quality and in some cases edibility over the course of an evening, it doesn't necessarily feel like an honour, more of a punishment. But if Young's will have me back, like Crystal Gale, I'll do it all over again. Whichever egg you favour, do please make sure that you only ever buy free range. Many retailers now only sell free range eggs, and in those that don't, the price difference between free range eggs and not is increasingly so small that most of us can afford it. I'm well aware, though, that it's a privilege to be able to choose to buy a more expensive version of any product. So if the choice is between being able to feed your family or not, then of course buy whatever's within your budget. And if you are feeding your family eggs, then lucky them, I say. Because if I do ever end up a castaway on that desert island, as long as I've got an endless supply of eggs to live on, I think I'll be a very happy man. Just before I go, I'd like to ask that if you're in a position to, you'll consider supporting one of the many brilliant charities working tirelessly to ensure that children, disadvantaged families and the homeless don't go hungry during the pandemic, such as Magic Breakfast, Fair Share, Street Smart and the Trussell Trust. That's it for this week. Thanks ever so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet me at hrwright or send me an email to hrw at hughrichardwright.com and I hope you'll join me next week for more of Hugh's Joy of Food.